It's a tale of two banks. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined today by John Maxfield. He's out in Portland, Oregon, a contributing banking analyst for The Motley Fool. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Allison. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It is Monday, so of course that means we're talking about banks today. Specifically, we're going to talk about two banks, one of which is Bank of America. We're going to talk about why John thinks that the bank's marriage to Merrill Lynch was a bad decision and should be broken up. But first, we're going to look at New York Community Bank and one pretty big mar on its otherwise stellar reputation. So for those of you who don't know, New York Community Bank is a beloved bank, particularly with dividend investors with a yield of, I think, about 6%, maybe even more. Um, it's also a pretty beloved bank with our own John Maxfield. Isn't that right? That's right. It's, 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 in my opinion, it's, it's one of the, the best-run banks in the United States. Well, it has blown away the competition when it comes to how their stock has performed when you take in dividends and buybacks, but its return on assets, which is a pretty significant number for the banking industry, for the last 12 months, it's among the lowest. So first off, remind me again what return on assets is and why it's so important. Sure. So return on assets, it's just a ratio that measures profitability in the banking industry, and it's derived by taking your earnings. Um, on an annual basis divided by your total assets of a bank. And it's important because it allows you to compare the profitability of banks irrespective of their size. So because New York Community Bank is, I imagine, much smaller than, of course, the second bank we're going to talk about, but um, why are they so lousy when it comes to looking at this number? So when you look at a bank and you break down its business model into its most fundamental component pieces, a bank will make money in two different ways. First, it'll make money by taking, uh, they'll, they'll borrow money from depositors and other creditors and then invest that money into different types of assets like loans and government securities. And then they'll arbitrage those two interest rates. So the, the assets that they invest the money in uh, have a higher interest rates than the deposits and the funding um, that they are taking in and paying on. So that's one way they make money, through net interest income. And then the other way they make money is through non-interest income. That's by charging fees to their customers, either overdraft fees, uh, mortgage origination fees, uh, things like that, maintenance fees on just checking and savings accounts. And when you get up to a bank the size of a New York Community Bank Corps, I think it's approaching the $50 billion threshold, you, what you're typically going to see is a 50, roughly 50-50 split between non-interest income and net interest income. Well, in New York Community Bank Corps' case, it only generates about 13% of its net revenue from non-interest income sources. And as a result of that, its business model is really exposed to interest rate risk because it's making all of its money off of its asset portfolio. So when you have low interest rates, particularly low short-term interest rates, which is what we've had since the financial crisis, its earnings and, and as a result, its return on the assets is going to be much lower than other banks um, that, have a, uh, that have a broader uh, business model. So the company itself will even admit that they're a bit niche, right? Like largely they're invested in like New York real estate that is um, rent rent controlled. Am I understanding that correctly? So is it even fair to compare them to other banks on this number? So yeah, so a couple couple questions there. So yes, they are they are a niche bank. Um, they invest specifically with principally they invest in multi large multifamily buildings 
that are rent controlled. So these are like your, your skyscrapers that have apartments in them, but because of New York, New York City law, there's a cap on how high that rent can be. So that is their kind of specific little niche. They're not dealing with a bunch of smaller customers. It's a handful of large customers. So, so that's, that's their niche. But is it fair to compare them to other banks? Absolutely, because all a bank is, is just a leveraged fund, right? You're just taking in money, or you have capital, you're leveraging that up with borrowing, and then you're investing that in assets. So when you look at a bank, every bank is investing in kind of a different kind of a niche of assets or a different distribution of assets, whether it's commercial, consumer, or various types of commercial. So every bank is different in the, in, in the exact composition of the assets that it holds. It just so happens that New York Community Bank Corps is, is really focused in this one area. But to answer that question, yeah, it's absolutely uh, fair to compare New York Community Bank Corps to other banks because it's just a leveraged fund, but it just does really well over a long period of time. So then... Is it too simple to say that when interest rates go up, the stock is, in, in theory, going to go up? Or do you feel that it's already kind of baked in there? Like, what, what do you think we can expect from New York Bank going forward, New York Community Bank going forward? So, you know, as you know, Allison, it's impossible to predict, you know, what stocks are going to do that's, over the, the short term and, and even the medium term. But when you have a bank like New York Community Bank Corps that has multiple decades of writing good loans and operating efficiently, you can expect that share price, or at least its book value, to increase over multiple dec multiple years, multiple banking cycles. And that's what I would expect with the New York Community Bank Corps. Now, you know, does it have kind of a, 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 a kind of a flaw, if you will, on because it doesn't have much non-interest income? You know, arguably it does, but over the long term, it is it is proven that its model of focusing on this one specific type of building in the New York metropolitan area is better than the vast majority of the, the models that most other of its, most of its other competitors in the bank industry um, are using to generate uh, smaller returns. All right, so bottom line, its return on assets maybe not so pretty to look at, but overall you, you like the company. Yeah, it's, it's, its return on assets right now isn't great. But once you factor in multiple cycles, because those interest rates will go up, to your point, um, it's going to look totally differently. All right. Well, let's move on then. Um, but before we do, I just want to remind our viewers that we do have a special offer for them over at WTMI.Fool.com. It's, it's a special offer for Stock Advisor, which is the Motley Fool's flagship newsletter, which over its lifetime has more than tripled the market's return, by which I mean the recommendations that we make in Stock Advisor. So if you want to learn more about Stock Advisor and get a special offer for WTMI listeners, just head to WTMI.Fool.com. All right, now it's time for the second bank of the day, which is Bank of America. So what we're going to do, though, is we're going to first going to hop into the Wayback Machine. It was the weekend of September 13, 2008, when Merrill Lynch and Bank of America essentially took off to Las Vegas and got married in a whirlwind affair. Uh, to extend the metaphor even a little bit more, Bank of America was like this middle-aged guy with maybe deeper pockets, and Merrill Lynch was a decent-looking broad with some serious baggage that eventually turned into a $2.43 billion shareholder lawsuit that Bank of America had to pay for. So that was 2008. Um, and Bank of America now, as a result, is straddling the line of commercial and investment banking, which, if you can really torture the metaphor here, what is that like? Well, yeah, you, 
how I think of it, I want to talk metaphorically in a marriage, it's kind of like the princess marrying a prince, and then she kisses him, and he turns into a frog. So it's like the opposite direction. <laughs> so at the time, Merrill Lynch was basically saved. I mean, not basically. I mean, it was saved by Bank of America. It came, Bank of America came in with this balance sheet, basically propped up at the time was a failing investment bank. Um, but since then, it's the, the, the tides have kind of reversed because you had all these liabilities come on to bank, legal liabilities and mortgage liabilities come on to Bank of America's balance sheet as a result of its uh, marriage, its second marriage to Countrywide Financial, which was at the time the largest mortgage originator in the country. And as we've since come to find out, they underwrote a large share of, of, of toxic mortgages that have now hit Bank of America's income statement. Um, as a result, so Merrill Lynch, quite frankly, since then has, has really been uh, kind of helping Bank of America to, to get along to absorb these losses. But at the same time, you think it's time for a divorce. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, the problem is that when you look at the, when you look at the, the company overall, you have, you know, your Merrill Lynch side, which is your investment banking side, your wealth management side, then you have your Bank of America side, which is a large retail uh, commercial bank. The problem is that when you put those two things together, given the changes in the laws and regulations since the financial crisis, you're getting a commercial bank that cannot compete with other commercial banks, and you're getting an investment bank that cannot compete with other investment banks. So that those synergies that people think that at, at the time we believed they're going to create this, this amazing retail behemoth that could cross-sell between wealth management products and retail banking products, and at the same time, um, have this universal banking model where even very large com companies can come in, get loans from the bank, or the bank can securitize those loans for them and put them out on the market, which is what you would do with an investment bank. We've come to find out that those synergies actually aren't there. Bank profitability statistics compared to its, uh, its, its competitors are dramatically, dramatically lower. And, and just to point out one uh, specific reason for that, so when you have an investment bank, one of the things that investment banks do is they they, they they trade securities on the, on the market, and they also underwrite debt and equity securities. Well, when you're engaged in these type of activities, you need a higher level of liquidity than a commercial bank. And what I mean by liquidity is that, so let's say you have a, your traditional commercial bank, you're going to have 80% of your assets, 70, 80% of your assets invested into loans, right, which are illiquid assets, but they, they yield much higher than, say, a government treasury, a treasury certificate, right, which, will, which yields much lower but it's much more liquid. If something happens in the economy, you can immediately sell a U.S. Treasury certificate, right? Well, Bank of America, on its, on its commercial banking side, it's not able to maximize the percentage of its assets that are consumed by loans because it's got to stay so liquid for its investment banking side, and that's low. That's run. That's driving down its net interest income, which is, you know, like I was talking about with New York Community Bank, or one of the principal ways that commercial banks make money. So how, do you, how would you propose a split with the company? Is it send it back to keeping wealth management and investment banking in one corner and then the retail banking the other? Like how, how do you propose they, they split up the, the assets here? I mean, Bank of America is much, I mean, you'd have to really know obviously what, what you're doing to go in there and to split it up. I mean, it, it certainly seems like the natural split to... Um, kind of carve off your wealth management operations or your investment banking operations and leave your commercial banking operations or just carve off your, your investment banking operations, leaving your wealth management and your commercial and, and kind of your commercial retail bank together. So maybe you could realize some of those cross-selling synergies. 
Um, but I, it would be in, in big chunks like that. Mm -hmm. So obviously, <laughs> divorce is a big decision. So what are the chances? And are you just kind of kind of daydreaming here? Well, I mean, the chances are sm pretty small, yeah. right? <laughs> this is how uh, the get started. So yeah, yeah, I would say. I would say that the chances are definitely small, and one reason is that when you have a board of directors and executives, um, they have a vested interest in maintaining the size of the company because their compensation is based in, in at least in part on the size of the company. A community banker who's running a $100 million asset balance sheet isn't going to be making as much as, say, a CEO of a Bank of America who has you know more than a trillion dollars in assets on its balance sheet. So, so I'd say that the chances are low. However, if over multiple cycles it continues to generate substandard returns compared to its competitors, you could definitely see a scenario under which an active investor or just collectively its retail investors get fed up and start to push its board in that direction to then unlock the value that was theoretically supposed to be unlocked by the marriage in the first place. All right. Well. Thank you, John. That is going to do it for today, our tale of two banks. If you are looking for more banking analysis, you can read more of John's columns at fool.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at OneMarlandRoad. That's O-N-E-M-A-R-L-A-N-D-R-O-A-D. We'll flash it up on the screen next time because that's a mouthful for me to pronounce. All right, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you to our viewers and listeners at home. I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.